10,000 feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors. And I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top floor. Three oars rip right round your jugular. Three oars rip right round your You're listening to Feminist Killjoys PhD, an hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional Killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing pop culture, Marxist cultural wars, the Oscars, and our own relationship with celebrity and Hollywood. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the internet? That is an excellent question. You can find us in select places. We have a Twitter account, FKJ underscore PhD. We have a Facebook page where you can like us. And we have a Facebook community page where you can join in on multiple conversations. Just search for Feminist Killjoys, WTF Community, and that should get you close enough. We also have a Spotify mixtape that Rachel puts together with all of our outro music and spliced in music. And you can email us at fkj.phd at gmail.com, my preferred form of communication, uh, because I'm loving 2004 right now. And we also have a few ways that you can support us monetarily. We have a Patreon account, and thank you so much to those who are donating via the micro donations every month. And then you can also leave us a one-time donation on our website, which is feministkilljoyspodcast.com. Just click on the birdie and leave us some money so we can get some studio stuff like this. And I sound like this, and I sound profesh. What about you, Rachel? (laughs) I just want to second the the thanks for uh, the Patreon donations and also give a shout out to Lacey Davis and Holly, who had a shout out for us on their podcast recently, uh, recommending that that listeners support uh, Nicole George's podcast, Sagittarian Matters, Rise and Resist, Smash Everything, Vegan Warrior Princess Attack, and us, Feminist Killjoys PhD, because we are five vegan feminist podcasts on the airwaves. And Nicole made a good point that if you supported all five of us at $2, it'd be $10 a month, and you'd get amazing podcasts brought to you by vegan feminists. And after that show aired, we got a ton of donations. So I think that was part of the reason. I know that it was because somebody on Instagram, your favorite grandma, shout out to you. I forget your real name, but you've always been a great Instagram fan. And listener. And we're grateful that you did that. Anyway, so that was really cool. And we're grateful and appreciative. We also got a bunch of iTunes reviews that uh, a while ago, we got a big batch around our birthdays. uh, Because I, I begged without embarrassment for iTunes reviews. So I just wanted to read, I'm going to pick one good one, and I'm going to pick one bad one, because we have our second negative iTunes review. It's a surprise to Melody. She hasn't heard it yet. I'm going to read a review from somebody who basically looks like they hit the home keys with their with their hands, because it's not like a pronounceable name. It's just like letters jumbled together. So I don't know how to say this, but thank you for this person whose title of the review is informative and engaging. The review says... This is like having a wonderful conversation with your super smart best friend without the pressure to say anything. I have learned so much. I wish I could take their classes. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I would love to know what this listener has to say in response to the things we say because I like conversations and not just talking at people. But if you feel low pressure in this format, then that's pretty cool and exciting. So thank you for that review and everybody else who's left reviews. We love Love, love, love reading them. And here's our bad one. This is from Noel, 2929. Title, You Almost Had Me, three stars. 
review. I initially enjoyed this podcast despite the terrible sound quality, which made it difficult for me to listen to in my commute to and from work. Fair then enough. they talked about ast- it's not over. Oh, then they talked about astrology, and that's it for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, can't win them all. Sorry, Noel. We're feminist witches who like the stars. So sorry, bud. Wait, somebody you. somebody tapped out not because of our sound quality, which totally was horrible at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> that is fair to like not, you know, we could totally. like do a like a re-ask like, hey, everybody who like tuned us out because our sound quality sucked, come on back. But he tapped out or they tapped out because of our astrology episode. Yep. Exactly. Of all the things, huh? Of all the things. Huh. All right. So, well, all right. Fair enough. You know. Okay. Cool. So anyway, if you want to help. So now we have two negative reviews and a bunch of good ones, but we'd love even more good ones to keep those bad reviews lower. So please leave us a review. Although to be fair, sometimes the bad reviews are also helpful. You know, if somebody said, I'm not listening because of astrology, that would cue in people that are into astrology that it's their kind of show. That's true. So I don't think our reviews are negative in terms of not appealing to the people that probably want to listen to us. They're yeah. just, they're more laughable. What was the other one? It was from Suit Dude, and he basically is critiquing me mostly because I do this more than you do, but um, oh, our saying, voice. uh, yeah, yeah, well, lady I, voice things. Well, now I edited Socialized, that out. socialized lady voice things. Yeah. yeah. How are you doing, Mel? I'm doing good. I think, yeah, I think last week I didn't have anything positive to say, but this week I. I'm trying to stay positive. I am doing some like cool creative stuff at home that is making me feel better. And so I'm just aware of that. And so I'm just trying to amp that up more. So just doing, you know, arts and crafts and Mm -hmm. rearranging stuff in my house like makes me feel good. And also I reminded myself that Mr. Rogers exists and I really like his kind of take on the world about how he was always trying to make a change, but he always did it very calmly and very sweetly. And so, you know, I was like, you know, Melody, you should really go back to Mr. Rogers and think about how he does it. Because like the way that I'm living with being in constant rage is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what are some ways that I can still be active in my politics, but not burn out in two weeks. Cause I feel like at last week, I fe- felt like I was at almost to burnout stage in terms of yeah. like my, just my, uh, my mental health. And my therapist was like, maybe you should get on Xanax or like something similar. And I was like, really? Mm-hmm. If this is where we're at, like I need to like re, <laughs> I need to, like recalibrate stuff. So, well, and also no offense to people who are on Xanax. No, um, no, just but... that it, it was a signal. No, yes. And yeah. no shame. Just that that was like a signal for me that it's gotten so bad that now they're saying that maybe I need to be on stronger anxiety mm-hmm. medicine. That's all. Medicine is great. It helps lots of people. And then also I just had some good – you have those good moments in in your classroom where people are like getting it. And in one of my classes, I could literally see my student getting it live. You know, he was like zoned out. I was like, are you okay? He's like, Yeah. And then what he said back to me was basically, wow, like all of the media industries, they keep people of color from succeeding, like in the Oscars and the grant. And and he just like it just dawned on him. You know, it was just like a a light bulb moment. And it was. Yeah. So those moments are cool to see. And then my intercultural communication class is 
awesome in so many ways, but it's um, I, I feel like I need to like write about it or something because the pedagogy has been morphing and I've been able to like negotiate projects with them and they're being really honest with me about what they do and do not like in class. And they're learning a lot from each other and not a lot from the readings. And so that's making me kind of reconsider the role of readings in the class. And so I don't know, lots of good fun stuff going on at school. And last but not least, I with the help of my wonderful partner, created this sound studio in my house where I have recording padding, like sound re- reducer foam are all around me. So it's... Uh, it looks really cool, y'all. I can see it on Skype and it's a little cave of feminist podcast glory. Yeah. So we'll see it's if really that cute. helps with, with the sound. I don't know. It just makes me feel official. What about but in you? a very DIY way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, like, totally it's, like, it's like super makeshift and safety pinned together and yeah. Velcro <laughs> and things are falling apart already and just right. the way I like it. What up with you? I also had a better week. I felt like I was sort of crawling out of the just kind of fuzzy mental health stuff that I felt like I'd been dealing with. Also had a good week of teaching, which I really needed because I was even that wasn't sort of bringing me the same kind of joy and excitement that it had been that it usually does. We were talking about sex work this week and got my students on board to understand that dominant ideology stigmatizes sex work and doesn't stigmatize other jobs that actually cause harm to society and that actually maybe sex work doesn't cause harm to society. And we just had a really great conversation about labor under capitalism and uh, lots of great stuff. And they got to hear voices of sex workers who actually like their jobs and they, you know, hadn't many, most of them had never heard that narrative before. Um, so that was an exciting class. And yeah, and the end of uh, the rest of my trip visit rather with my mom and Logan's mom was also also good. So yeah, it was it was an it was an okay week and boot and boot camp started, which I am coaching at the yoga studio slash sort of fitness studio that I work at. So that was also fun. Not a bad week. I forgot to mention too to go back to the vegan feminist theme Mm -hmm. we will be can i tell them we will be in portland oregon next weekend vegan mecca with feminist vegan podcasters very excited excited. i get to meet Lacey irl which i have not yet and molly of smash everything irl which i have not yet uh, and we're going to eat vegan food and work out. And I'm super, super excited. And I'm going to see some other people in Portland that I'm super excited about. So Such as me. Such well, as was, you. Well, that was – well, because we booked our trip separately. Or I was already coming to Portland and then Rachel just kind of – it kind of worked out with – she needed to come out to Portland. And so it, it wasn't – we didn't plan it this way, but we post-planned it this way. I mean, it helped motivate. I knew I – I've been wanting to go for a long time. It coincides with my spring break. It worked out. Yay. And and we're going to be there together. It's going to be good. Uh, we don't have an official meetup plan, but if anything changes, we'll talk about it on on the social meds and let and let folks know. That's and if good. anybody wants to take pictures of us, they can do that. Maybe. Yeah, we got some money. <laughs> we can we can hook you up. Yeah, there's got to be like a feminist photographer out there. Yeah, so we're super excited about Portland, and uh, that's where we'll be broadcasting from next week. How's your dinner party going? Is anybody fucking it up? You know, usually nobody ever messes up my dinner party. Psych. 
Uh, <laughs> this week, well, due to the theme of our show, I thought we could discuss how the people who design expensive dresses for celebrities is totally ruining my dinner party and, and many others, especially women who are bigger than a size six. I was doing some research on Melissa McCarthy because she I'm like really into her right now for multiple reasons. And I came across this issue that I'm very well aware of, but it it had to do with the Oscars. So I'll just read something that she told Red Book and then Mm -hmm. reposted in the Washington Post. Okay, so she said, two Oscars ago, I couldn't find anybody to do a dress for me. I asked five or six designers, very high level ones who make lots of dresses for people. And they all said no. Boo. Leslie Jones had the same problem, too, for other award shows. Yeah. And uh, so what she ended up wearing was a ready-to-wear plus-line dress that you can find Mm -hmm. at department stores. Like, she literally Mm -hmm. had to go to a department store because, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, high-level designers don't want to put their work on people's bodies that are larger, seriously, than a size 6. I mean, because the other person that was talking about it was um, Christina Hendricks from from Mad Men. Were you a Mad Mm -hmm. Men fan? Were you? I couldn't get into it. Okay. It was too manny and depressing for me. But yeah, uh, so but she's cool and beautiful. Yeah, and she she had a similar problem. So she said it's difficult come award season, and I need to find a gown to walk down the red carpet in, and there are only only size zeros and size twos available. Then it becomes downright annoying because all of these designers are saying we love Mad Men, but we won't make her a dress. And honestly, like, it just boggles my mind in terms of I and I know there's like, I don't want to like start like a hierarchy of like when it becomes really ridiculous. But like she said, it's like above a size two, mm-hmm. which yeah. is most women. It's just it just really bums me out that with all the progress that we've made with equality and, you know, yada, you know, all yada, yada, yada feminism that yeah. we're still here with women being unable to get a fancy million dollar dress from a designer because they're too ashamed to have somebody bigger than a size six wearing it, which just makes no sense. No sense. I don't even want to, I feel like it's, I have this urge to be like listing all the beautiful women who are larger than a size six and how beautiful they looked at award shows. But like that just, that just gives into the issue, right? Like me justifying all women are beautiful, any size you are. And the fact that extremely talented women who have other shit to deal with have to like deal with this right just makes me totally upset and it ruins my dinner party so it's not me ruining the dinner party it's these designers would you like to add anything as a fashion-y person rachel i mean just that i agree with you i just echo all that it's it's some bullshit fuck that yeah yeah and i think you know you and i have had discussions when we're as people who work out and bulk up and, you know, I had expressed mm-hmm. to you, I don't know if I ever talked about this on air, but, you know, the minute that you actually grow muscles, mm-hmm. you know, larger, just you bulk up. Yeah. Women's clothing is just not designed for people with like big broad shoulders or big biceps. Yeah. When I got really, I was lifting a lot of weights last summer and I literally couldn't fit into stuff. Like it was right. ridiculous. And that's yeah. just muscle. Oh, it just... The whole clothing industry in America is just, it's fucked. It makes yeah. me so angry. What, yeah. How do people shop? What do people buy? I, I, I mean, a lot of 
stretchy leggings. Black yeah. leggings is pretty much that's all I great. wear. I'm so glad <laughs> anymore. Are, I'm so glad that's not going out of style. And even if it right. does, like that's that's all I, I know. wear now is like leggings and dresses. That's it. Yep. Okay. Sorry, that was a that was a pretty long ramp, but I just uh... no, that's okay because it, it is related to what we want to talk about. And and honestly, maybe this is a good specifically a good transition to thinking about some of the negative aspects of pop culture Hollywood and award shows and things like that, we want to get into the sort of academic conversation about the value of pop culture. But before we do that, we want to talk sort of about our personal relationships to this world. I I find it interesting. I was thinking about this as I was tweeting during the Oscars. Like I follow mostly on Twitter, not mostly, but I follow a lot of like super radical Marxists or anarchists who could give two shits about this stuff. And it's really funny to just see the juxtaposition of like, people talking about celebrities and Hollywood gossip that I follow against, you know, really militant, radical, how to overthrow capitalism kind of tweets. And, I, and you know, just what a sort of um, how I contain multitudes and how I'm, you know, a lot of people think that things that I'm into are kind of contradictory. But the roots of my relationship to Hollywood and the movies and entertainment industry, I very much attribute to being working class. Um, admittedly, Hollywood provided a sort of outlet escapist world that I could uh, daydream about. I wanted to be an actress for a part, long, long part of my childhood. And so it created this sort of bootstraps narrative, right? A lot of these award shows do. We hear a lot of people talk about they never thought they would be here. There's a Whoopi Goldberg speech that I show when I used to teach public speaking where she talks about being, you know, a, a kid. And I don't think she uses the word ghetto, but she uses some other kind of if, it, if a white person would say a kind of problematic term, but she was just talking about her childhood and, you know, and then all of a sudden now she's risen up and become a person who won an Oscar. And so there is definitely some bootstrapism that I think was involved in, in my early um, obsession with the stars, but it was also a way to connect culturally to my family. My mom worked, you know, we were working class. And so TV was something we could sort of bond over and share together that didn't take a ton of energy. The rest of my family was also really into into movies and TV and not only just crappy mainstream media, but I also have members of my family that were super into like art house films. And I felt very fancy, like going to see these like really moving stories that sometimes reflected my life as, as, a, as a poor person or as a woman. And I saw more of that in those sort of independent films than I did in mainstream media. Those things were important to me. They helped me understand things about the world and about feelings and I'm incredibly grateful for my relationship to um, art and entertainment, even if the connection to the dinner party was that certainly part of idolizing celebrities means that I also idolized their body types and all of those things. So that was the link there. But what about you? Did you grow up with liking TV and movies and, and stars? No. <laughs> no, my uh, I, I actually don't have as you know, we grew up differently. I was like yeah. middle class and all the media was was made for me, but I didn't actually have much of a intense tie to any of it. I mean, I was really into theater when I was younger, and so I was more interested in like choir and plays and stuff. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. but what is a pattern across my entire life is my kind of boredom with most media except for the few things that rise to the surface. So I was really into TLC. And mm -hmm. Sisters with Voices when I was younger, and then mm, Green Day, you know, so these 
acts at the time that were pretty, I wouldn't say counter-hegemonic, but that were pushing some boundaries, that mm-hmm. those are the ones that always interested me. And I was often bored with the rest. And that continues to, to today. So, you know, this is one thing that Rachel and I are not like totally in line with is, you know, I'm constantly critiquing, well, as is Rachel, but in terms of like having this, this like nice story connected to your upbringing and stuff like that, I mm-hmm. don't have that. And then also... I'm much more quick to just kind of put a blanket argument, which we will unpack in a minute via scholars, that most mainstream media is just junk and it mm-hmm. just keeps us pacified. Mm-hmm. But I am very interested in the moments in which artists fight against that. And that's usually right. where my focus goes. Cool. So is it cool if I just sort of start this little mini lecture about about these two schools of thought and then you can jump in whenever you want? Yeah, let me so let me just preface this. So Rachel is a smarty pants and she's going to talk to us about the different lines of academia that discussed and analyzed pop culture. And there's some differing views. And this kind of stuff is basically what we dig into every day. We turn on the TV or I mean, these are just like the tools that we use to analyze the media. So I think it'll be really useful for you all. And so she's going to say a lot of academic stuff and then I'm going to try to bring it down a little bit and talk about it more casually so we can kind of get both both worlds. Does that make sense? Does that sound like a good plan, Rachel? Yeah, I think that sounds like a great plan. Okay. Oof, okay. Good thing that we've been doing this for a while. It's like we're it's like we're teachers. It's like we oh, do this. It's like we <laughs> it's, like it's like it's our job. It's like this is our job. <laughs> okay. All right. So um this sort of this is sort of a, a mini lesson on two as as Melody just said, two strains of thought, um, two approaches to critical theory in relationship to pop culture and the media. So it, around the twenties, there was a, a group of philosophers who were Marxist identified people. The the two most uh, sort of forefront names in this in this school was uh, Adorno and Horkheimer. So those are the two names that are related to what they ended up referring to as the Frankfurt School. So they are the Frankfurt School of Thinking. The Frankfurters were, like I said, Marxists who were interested in in revolution and interested in Marxist approaches to uh, engaging the working classes, etc. But I very much think of them as what people call armchair Marxists because they did a lot of like theorizing, but not so much like militant anything at all. So that's already one reason that I'm sort of skeptical of them. But what they suggested is that pop culture is a product of capitalism and it is used to create subordinates of the system and that mass culture. And at the time, uh, one of Adorno's most sort of famous essays that explains all of this is called On Popular Music. And he's talking about jazz and dances like the jitterbug and all of this stuff that was happening sort of in the 20s and 30s. And so and and also radio would, would have been in that era as well. So this is not like American Idol yet. But people can apply that to things like American Idol using using this kind of theory. So they're suggesting that, you know, this is it's, it's all media is all this popular culture stuff is very top down that, you know, capitalism creates it as a f- way to get people to consume. And then they then become a distracted from their awful lives as exploited workers and b become sort of dupes of the system that actually like, oh, if I'm experiencing this sort of distraction and pleasure, then my life isn't so bad and capitalism is working out just fine. So because of that, they are suggesting that pop culture and mass culture creates or reinforce what Marx referred to as false consciousness. And false consciousness is what uh, Marx explained is the reason that 
all of these workers, the proletariat, didn't rise up and revolt against their bosses because there's right there's tons of workers and not as many bo- bosses, and yet these workers were still, um, and as is today, sort of seemingly okay with the fact that they're doing all of the labor in order to make a couple handful of people wealthy. And so Marx's um, explanation of that is that basically they just don't get it. And so part of Marxist organizing philosophy is that you have to agitate. Um, You might have heard this in activist circles, agitate, educate, organize. So agitation is basically kind of poking at people and being like, hey, like, look behind the curtain. This is not this system is not okay. Here's you are actually exploited. Uh, Please understand that. And Adorno and the Frankfurt folks are saying pop culture is helping create a shield between um, awareness of exploitation and contentment and consent, right? So that's sort of the overview of their belief about pop culture. Mel, anything you want to add to that? I would say that in terms of how this idea is perpetuated in the media as well. So even, you know, their argument is that they really just don't even want to pay attention and break down the meanings behind a Beyonce music video or a Tribe Called Quest performance on the Grammys because it's all one in the same, that it's just trying to kind of pacify us and make us not want to get up and riot in the streets or revolt. Mm-hmm. But what's also interesting now is that, and this is part of the work of hegemony, and I hope that I'm not stealing your thunder later, Rachel, but when you're mm-hmm. talking about the workers specifically and about how still today, even with a mm-hmm. growing wage gap, we still don't have workers revolting in mass even mm-hmm. though there's even less and less people at at the top and more and more people at the bottom. Mm-hmm. The media also helps maintain this. And a show that is a perfect example of this is called Undercover Boss. It was a, It's a reality show. Did you ever see that, mm-hmm. Rachel? I did. It's horrifying. <laughs> yeah. So the reason why it's horrifying is it puts bosses of giant corporations undercover as a worker. And so the premise is that you then become sympathetic with the boss because they, and it's often he, he is seeing what it's really like to be a skilled worker, right? But then in terms of solutions, you know, once he realizes how hard it is to be a worker, he negotiates directly with that one specific worker and maybe will Mm -hmm. like pay their mortgage for a month or, you Mm -hmm. know, do something small for them, that one person. And this is typical union busting mentality too, that like Mm -hmm. you can just talk directly to your boss. And so not only is the media according to um, the Frankfurt School, kind of just pacifying us, even if they would take the time to dissect some of these messages, it's reaffirming this as well, that we can't really get mad Mm -hmm. at our boss. They're a sympathetic person. They will help me out if I actually come to them and tell them that I'm struggling. So that's Mm -hmm. an added layer to this argument as well. Great grounded example of that. Uh, The the final thing I'll say about the Frankfurt School is that in this essay that Adorno wrote uh, that sort of lays the foundation for this theory, he's comparing things like jazz to things like opera. So there's very much sort of this, I think, elitist, high culture, low culture divide. Some people would push back against that. Some sort of Adorno defenders would say that it's not exactly elitist, but I just think he's this boring old white guy who is not giving people agency, which is a perfect transition to what the people at Birmingham Uh, also known as the British Cultural Studies School of Thought, folks were more invested in. So uh, the sort of grandfather of uh, what we call British Cultural Studies is uh, Stuart Hall. Uh, Raymond Williams is also a big name there, as well as many others. They very much understood 
pop culture as something that because it was something that the masses engaged with versus something like opera, right? It's not like the majority of Americans uh, or wherever people are, because this is and these these neither of these folks were U.S. based, neither of these schools rather. So the masses, the workers, the proletariat, whatever you want to refer to it as, they're not engaging with this quote unquote high culture. So what? It, why are we going to ignore and dismiss the value of something that the vast majority of people engage with? Again, I'm going to bring in this American Idol concept because there's stats about how more people voted in American Idol than the presidential election. I don't remember if that's an exact fact. So somebody can fact check me on that. But it's some it's 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 dramatic in terms of how many people engage with pop culture versus formal politics, for example, or activism. So because of that, British cultural studies folks were like, we have to engage with this. Like we have to unpack this. And so Stuart Hall comes up with this idea of decoding, um, which is similar to any sort of critical theory deconstruction, right? So how do we look at something and sort of critically analyze it. What we can also call today sort of media literacy. um, And there's sort of different definitions of that. But it engaged with those things as a way to potentially see the the political potential of the of these pop culture things. They're very invested also in in discourse because they think that the messages that are being translated through these pop culture things can be both a yeah they they agree like yes it could be sort of oppressive and a distraction and all of these things but they're also again invested in this idea of agency of people being able to what melody mentioned the sort of uh creating counter hegemonic or counter basically mainstream or counter dominant messages via the pop culture pop culture um and media messages so in addition audiences can read counter hegemonic messages from the pop culture, even if it's not a non-dominant message in the TV or in the book or in the song. I'm going to pause there. Mel, you want to jump in? I did some fact checking and the 2012 election had less people voting than the American Idol of the same time frame. So 122 million people voted in the last U.S. election at that time. And then American Idol, it was 132 million. So during its heyday. Yeah. The easy response to that is the ways in which people were voting for American Idol, which is texting. Like if we could all just text our election vote, and I don't see why not, uh, Mm -hmm. from our home, yeah, more people would vote. But when you have to go to a poll, polling place, and there's a long line, and then there's all these racist voter ID laws that Mm -hmm. slow down the process, then don't even get me started on the voting thing because I could... I will derail us. But going back to what you were all what you were just saying, an example to think of in terms of a seemingly dominant messaged media text having a counter hegemonic message is when people do what's called querying the text. And so for a long time, filmmakers and TV producers and artists of all kind were subtly interjecting queer messaging into their work because they needed to get it through spot, you know, through censors and all these other regulatory groups. And so there's a lot of people that will sit and literally do, and Rachel does this, many people do this, they queer the text where they find literally like queer messaging in these texts. And mm-hmm. and you can do that even when an artist maybe isn't doing it purposefully. There's a lot of really fun ways that you can decode media messages, which is like super my jam. I love doing this 
I'm gonna, yeah. I think you do too, right? So this is like, this is my Definitely. jam. It's like my favorite chapter during the semester. Yep. Where I'm all like, all right, you guys get ready because I am pumped to tell you about <laughs> cultural studies. And yeah, it's a good time. But I thought the query in the text is a really good example of totally how these messages can be embedded and you know, audiences can maybe not even see it unless you're looking for it. And yeah. if you think about it, Disney films right now, The Simpsons, Family Guy, they all have these like second layer messages that if you're not paying mm-hmm. attention, you'll miss. And it doesn't make a difference to the quality of the programming. But if you're paying mm-hmm. attention, you can catch a lot more stuff. Yeah, which, again, I think the reason um, the British Cultural Studies School of Thought appeals to me so much as a working class person is I just think that by allowing working class people agency, even amidst a system, and again, as a person who is also a Marxist, who believes that capitalism is 100% oppressive and that there is, there is, you know, a sort of a division, there's, there's the bosses, there's the workers, there's the people with power, there's the people without power. Like, I actually believe in kind of some of those binaries, actually, even though I spend a lot of my time deconstructing binaries. But what I will say is that the oppressed, and I think this is fundamental for any movement, people know that the oppressed are also incredibly powerful, not simply just dupes and can have agency with the things that they engage with. And in terms of these things being a distraction, uh, you know, as long as capitalism is alive and well, and it's not changing overnight, as we know, you know, God, just let like people who work too many hours a day, like relax with something. I mean, I'm, some people argue for this in terms of like substances. There are some sort of working class people or revolutionary radical people that are like, you know, alcohol has a, an important part of providing pleasure for the workers, things like that. But why can't it also be media? I think, especially if you're enabling, um, and, and allowing people to practice critical thinking, uh, in a way that I think the Frankfurt school people didn't grant to what they referred to as the masses and a British cultural studies scholar named Raymond Williams, who I mentioned earlier said there are no masses. There are only ways of seeing masses. I think that's his quote. So just nuancing that a little. And I would add as well to somewhat push back on what you're saying. uh, Definitely. I, if you, if I, if I had to pick a school, I might be more on the side of the mass media is a waste of time and it is pacifying us and there's not much good to come out of it. But then when you bring up the point of like, but we all need a moment to relax. And yes, I, I do feel 100% that people have the agency in being able to decode what's going on. My worry, and I know this is you are very aware of this as well, is that when people are relaxing and watching that show or that film, what messages are embedded in them? Because mm-hmm. I very much believe that things like local news, you know, movies and TV that, for example, only show Muslim people as, as negative people, I really think that is... Cr- that really contributes to some of the social issues that we're having in this country right now. Mm-hmm. And so that's my worry that if people are going to be relaxing and watching these things, that they're still getting messages about our society because, you know, we come from the belief that media often reflects or shapes what we think about our society. And there's mm-hmm. obviously, you know, nitty gritty theories about 
do we really take in these messages? At, at to what extent do we take in the messages? Mm-hmm. Do we act on the messages? But I think we can have entertaining media that helps us relax at the end of a stressful day that has better messaging than what we're seeing today. And I know that you're 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 down with that. The, the only other pushback, though, in terms of the power of the media is I always think about The Daily Show and mm-hmm. and how, you know, people read it as a counter hegemonic text, but that the way that it keeps us pacified is that it keeps us laughing. So instead mm-hmm. of us wanting to do action and somebody will think, no, Melody, John Stewart got us to call our Congress people and ask them to actually give funding for the 9-11 first responders, you know, like I know that they do take that platform to to do actual political work. But I still think that even in these moments of resistance, because it's couched in entertainment and because we are being very passive as consumers sometimes, the media does keep us on our couch more than I would like to see. And I think that it doesn't have to be that way, just like it doesn't have to be the way that there's problematic messages embedded in a lot of the texts that we consume. So that w- those would be my critiques back at Birmingham. Yeah, well, I, I think that I don't think anybody at Birmingham, but I, I'll just say what I, I think, taking all of these theories into account. I don't think the media can ever, the mainstream media can ever be radical, right? It's corporate owned. The Daily Show is corporate owned, right? Everything we watch on The Wire, which is a show that fucking white lefty people are fucking obsessed with. Like that was produced by HBO, which is relatively elitist in that you have to have enough money to get HBO and things like that. So no media that is controlled by corporations can ever be radical. What I don't, so I don't think anybody's trying to argue that. I just, for me, feel like it can be as sort of we often come back to is that it can be both and, right? We can have both pleasure from media. We can learn how to critically analyze media. We can see counter hegemonic messages coming from media, even all the while knowing that media is not radical, right? The revolution will not be televised, that whole thing. What is radical is organizing, taking the streets, unionizing, (laughs) challenging systems of power through direct action, but that doesn't mean that we we should scapegoat the media as the thing that is keeping us from that. That's that's my opinion, because as somebody who is committed to both militant direct action and also enjoys television, <laughs> I just think that those things can coexist because the masses are thinking people and that in our current system, I don't have the energy every day to go to the streets or organize a factory like You know, that's not what I'm going to do. So sometimes television becomes a thing that is helpful to get me through this life. Does that make sense? It does. And I think the only thing, my two responses is I wasn't necessarily arguing that anybody was saying that there's like the possibility to have radical messages in the media. I'm just saying because we aren't allowed to have radical messaging in mainstream media, that's what I'm concerned about in terms of people turning on the TV and, and watching the stuff as entertainment because of basically the messages that are embedded. And now with social media, this argument gets a little more complicated. But I still think that we've been trained as a society to just come home, turn on the TV and do nothing instead of taking the time to do something more productive. Of course, there's like a lot of people that work their asses off all day and can't do anymore at the end of the day. I'm not talking mm-hmm. about those people. I'm talking about more middle class people who have the energy, who just work at a desk and, you know, 
mm-hmm. play around on Facebook all day and then come home and watch TV. Like, I think we're just we just really encourage that in our society. And that's why we don't have more people. I think the media does play a role in why we're not able to do more together as a community because people just they're in this routine. And it's a routine that has been set up for centuries. I mean, us coming home and sitting around the radio and listening to that programming. It's mm-hmm. It's been the same thing. That's just what bothers me. And that's why I started off saying, like, I'm probably a little bit more, you know, in the Frankfurt School of Thought, because I do think that we have pacified a lot of people through the media. I hear that. I want to back up for a second and say, I actually do think there can be radical messages in the media. I mean, you have people like Melissa Harris Perry on MSNBC Mm -hmm. saying words like white supremacy and capitalism, like 100 percent. I mean, Laverne Cox and Mel Hooks had an interview that was circulated all over Facebook, which is a corporation. And so there are 100 percent can be very radical messages. I mean, there's documentaries about the Black Panthers, et cetera. I'm just saying that the media itself is probably not going to be can't be a radical tool insofar as it is owned by by corporations, something like Unicorn Riot, which we talk about a lot, which is this sort of guerrilla journalist operation that uh, shows things happening in, you know, on the ground. Maybe, I think media can be part of revolutionary change in that way. But corporate media, no, I mean, it's it's owned by by powerful corporations. So I, I hear you. I mean, but ultimately that gets to the point like, well, OK, so you're saying radical messages, but you know that people are sitting on their couch listening to those radical messages and not out in the streets. So I hear you. You know, I just I just don't know that if if we got rid of our televisions that people would actually organize. What if we got rid of our phones or smartphones? No, I think, well, I mean, this is interesting. I guess I'm contradicting myself because I was like, you need your phones <laughs> to organize. <laughs> um, but phones are owned by Apple, which is like a fucking terrible, you know, one of the worst corporations out there in terms of labor practices. Yeah, I don't have a perfect answer to this. Yeah, it would be. It's answer. just an interesting thought experiment. It's not. Totally. You know, it's just something, you know, and I would say too something that we didn't bring up with cultural studies is there is a a line of study called political economy where people do what Rachel was just saying in terms of when a corporation owns a news organization, what ends up being covered in the news or, you know, so the, the idea that if you're not familiar with this, like we used to have, you know, 50 corporations that owned everything. But thanks to the Telecommunication Act of 1996, F.U. Bill Clinton and Ronald Mm -hmm. Reagan before you. Now, media companies can own pretty much anything they want. There used to be regulations on how many radio stations and how many TV stations. And now those regulations are completely relaxed. And now what is what has happened is there's like three or four dominant media companies that own everything we consume via mainstream Mm -hmm. media. And so this is what Rachel's talking about when she says when media is owned by corporations. And it's not just like some corporations. I mean, it's very few that dominate Mm -hmm. the industry. And then they work together to make sure that they all maintain dominance. And this is, I mean, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's in like mainstream textbooks that my students read. So that's just another thing that I wanted to point out is the political economy analysis, too, is really interesting. Yeah, that's kind of all. I I mean, I would love to know what y'all think. Uh, If anybody wants to chime in on the Facebook group or tweet at us, I'd love to know what people think about this. You know, I I mean, I will say there was like probably during my undergrad years, I, I didn't watch TV much. I didn't argue against people calling like the TV, like the idiot box. And like, you know, that's, you know, that's just what lazy people do who aren't interested in politics. And I think it's really interesting that 
I got back into television when I started going first, first of all, being in grad school with people who studied the media and watched a lot of TV for both study and pleasure. Um, but also when I started to feel more like an isolated laborer, right? Like I, or alienated rather is what I meant to say, alienated laborer, um, who was feeling really depleted by my work as a, as an underpaid grad student. And then, and then as a, a uh, contingent junior faculty member who works a lot and doesn't get paid a lot that I went, went back to that. And, and then I, and then my calling it an idiot box didn't seem as appropriate anymore. <laughs> so awesome. So yeah. like George Bush era, like nineties, like yeah. kill your yeah. TV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So oh, yeah, I don't know. Good. No perfect answers to, to wrap this conversation up. And the reason we sort of timed it like this is because because of my childhood investment in Hollywood culture means that I, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, watch all of these award shows. And I think we said this last week, every year I'm less and less sure that my students give a shit about this stuff at all. But some people are watching it like it is on the Internet. These clips are on the Internet. People talk about it. So as I mentioned, my mom and I watch the Oscars every year. So we can just sort of wrap up if you had any um, on this topic, if you had any thoughts, Mel, about about the Oscars. You should go first on your Oscar thing and then I'll. Okay. It's important um, to you. And then I'll just, I'll just uh, fill I in mean, the gaps. I don't, I don't need to say a lot. I mean, it's already a week late and in this world that it means it's boring Over, and not important yeah. anymore. <laughs> but yeah, I thought Jimmy Kimmel was super boring and or offensive with his trying to learn how to pronounce people's names thing. That was just stupid. Um, fuck Casey Affleck. Uh, for not being accountable and for getting away with shit because you're and winning an award over Denzel Washington and finally yay moonlight and Um, I don't even like sorry I don't even like (laughs) Denzel Washington I'm not even a fan but like really well some of it is because I know who Casey Affleck is but also just uh, again this is like reading messages into the text you know but there's Mm -hmm. lately there's been a lot of really interesting online think pieces and just tweets, basically, that puts a lot of weight on when white people win over African Americans. And you know, this whole thing with Moonlight. Do you want to explain if people didn't catch this, what happened with La La Land and Moonlight? Yeah, so all of award season, people were uh, sort of on different sides of the fences about this. But people that I critical thinking, left leaning people who give a shit about race, politics and pop culture, were annoyed that Hollywood was obsessed with La La Land because it's a movie about Hollywood and white people and it's also about jazz starring white people and that Moonlight, which is one of the most beautiful films I think that has ever been made ever in the history of film, wasn't always beating La La Land out. And um, the night of the Oscars, La La Land gets called as the best picture, which is the last and most important award of the evening. And in disgust, I turned off my television with people I was watching it with. That's exactly what I did. I was like, oh, fuck this. Fuck La La Land. And I wrote, I tweeted something of like a guy throwing a chair <laughs> just out of anger. Um, <laughs> and then we got a text from my uncle and he was like, did you see Moonlight just win? And I was like, that's a sick joke. And then my mom was like, Dana, no. And he's like, turn the TV back on. And so we did. And then all of a sudden the people from Moonlight were on stage. So basically they had a, du- a duplicate of a they had a duplicate of a card that had La La Land's title in it. It was actually the Emma Stone Best Actress card. So the folks on stage, the readers, said the wrong film. And so La La Land didn't win in Moonlight won. And so it was a big, the first time that's happened in, in the history of the Oscars. So it was a big thing. But that meant that 
the superior film won. And it's a film about black people, one black man in particular who is uh, navigating gender identity and sexuality as a, from a child through a teenager through an adult. And we get to see sort of all, all his journey through his life and it's fucking gorgeous. And um, so, yeah, that was the situation. The weight of the award is is so much, especially because historically the Oscars have often gone to people of color or not people of color to white people. And just last year, there was the hashtag Oscars so white, because despite many beautiful films made by many people of color, there was zero nominations except for Mm -hmm. the song that uh, Mm -hmm. John Legend and Common performed. So this is a very recent issue that maintains itself, even though it's 2017. So Moonlight winning is more than Moonlight winning, you know, and this is the cultural studies thing. Instead of saying like, who cares? It doesn't matter. It's just a movie. Nobody, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're like, no, this is actually very serious. And it represents a lot about our society. And so exactly. It's a great, yeah, great connection. The other yeah. things that I'm I noticed watching the Oscars was there was this really amazing moment of cultural imperialism when they were interviewing people from other countries and having them talk about their favorite American films mm-hmm. instead of them just talking about their favorite films in general, because there was lots of foreign films nominated for mm-hmm. Oscars. But what's so interesting is that I talked to my students about cultural imperialism and about how the film industry specifically helps American culture dominate by taking over box offices. And so my students have done research on all sorts of different countries. And if you look at their box offices, the top movies are always American films. And because of Mm -hmm. the corporations that dominate, because they're so large, they have this distribution power that no other film companies can even compete with across the world. Mm -hmm. Rachel, you might have a better sense of this, but it seemed like there was obviously a lot of political speeches, which was great at the Oscars. It seemed too on Twitter there was some sentiment about like if you're not if you go up there and you don't make a statement about how you feel politically, you haven't done your job as an actor mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Did you get a sense of that uh, like, from Twitter or just do in general, I agree yeah, with that? Uh, any of it? Just that like there's now this pressure, and it's a good pressure, right? That right. If you get up there I and mean, you got I, a mic, you got to say something. Right. I think that is a result of who we follow on Twitter, right? I mean, I'm always disappointed when people who are some a tiny bit outspoken don't sort of take it a little bit further. Like Emma Stone had a Planned Parenthood button that basically was camouflaged with her dress. It was gold and it, she was wearing a gold dress so you could barely see it. Oh, and that was, her, that, that was her, that was her, that was, that was it. <laughs> she wore a Planned uh. Parenthood pin. So I just think, I mean, you have a gazillion dollars you have a platform, like fucking take a risk. It's not necessarily your job. So, I mean, you don't have to, whatever, but I think it's a super missed opportunity if you give a shit at all about anything to not do that. So I don't know, but you think, but you do think it's a good thing that that pressure is there though, you're saying? I was just, I mean, it just not good or bad. Well, I said, you know, it's, I'm using the word pressure in term, not in a, in a negative way, but just that it just seems like there's more expectations now for actors and artists. Uh, I think the Grammys kind of set 
a tone. And this happened during the Iraq war, too. I, I, during award seasons, like Michael Moore got in a ton of trouble when he said something. I remember Fiona Apple got in trouble. And I don't think people are getting in trouble anymore. It's now kind of like par for the course. Right. But during these moments of resistance, this this expectation, this is a better word, expectation put on artists mm-hmm. to say something with their platform. And when they don't, people seem to be disappointed. And you are right that it, it, it really does impact who we're following on Twitter. But it's yeah. just interesting even within that scope, within that bubble, that instead of just assuming that they're not going to do anything and just kind of be like, well, they're celebrities, so what are they going to do? Now it's like they're, people are actually expecting them to say something, which is, right. which is not, I mean, it's good. It's better than saying nothing, in my opinion. So Yeah, that's why we're so fucking excited when football players take a stand, right? And there's been a mm-hmm. great handful of football players. I mean, I think we could make the same argument about sports and pop culture obviously go hand in hand. I mean, we watch sports on television and people engage with that. So there's power in that. I hear you. Lots to say about sports, but sports is another great mm-hmm. example. So, yeah. Yeah. well, speaking of uh, things that we consume, should we uh, move on real quick and finish up with RWL since we're almost out of time? Yes, you should go first because I didn't write mine down this week. Oh, okay. So well, since I prepared, <laughs> I've been listening to Rilo Kiley's uh, more adventurous album. Yay, it's a that's great. All of their, I mean, all of their albums from the second to last one prior were pretty good. That doesn't, I, I know exactly what you mean, even though that made no sense what you just said. Second to I last forget. prior. Is more adventurous, wait, did you say more adventurous? Yeah, so it went the execution, so they had like, um, you know, their, one of their, their two, like, I think they had early, very acoustic-y EPs. ones, and then they had yeah. major label, once they got onto Saddle Creek, it was the execution of all things, the, and then more adventurous, right. and then something I dropped off at that point, but... I think that's when I stopped as well. So this one was also written during the Iraq War, and so it's just, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just nice to, like, have music like that, again, that I, resonates and reflects what's going on. So that's what I've been listening to. Yeah. What's that line about any idiot can be president for a day? And run for office on election day. Fancy himself a real decision maker and deploy more troops than salt shaker. But it's a jungle way war is made. So good, yeah. I'm watching Melissa McCarthy's skits. I retweeted one of her funniest skits ever where she is a Hidden Valley Ranch focus group (laughs) attendee. Did you see that? I saw that you tweeted it and I've seen it before. Yeah. My God. It's like (laughs) genius comedy, like in so many ways, like her subtleness, the complexity of the character. Oh. Just like gender ambiguity. There's just so much going on that I just like adore about that skit. So anyways, I just brought that back from the vaults for your laughing pleasure. You can. Yes, I'm just like now totally contradicting what I said earlier. Please take a moment (laughs) and sit in front of your television. Forget about the world and and (laughs) let Melissa McCarthy entertain you. Right. And then get up and make some phone calls. Okay. Uh, (laughs) And then I'm reading uh, my students put together their midterm essays for my intercultural class where they do research on another culture that isn't theirs. And so I'm enjoying reading them. Like this one guy from West Africa, he did research on hippie culture. 
And I find it so interesting. These are the moments where I'm just like, this is so cool for somebody who has like no idea what hippie culture is. Like they're not they're not from this country. Yeah. And for them to do research on it, this is the point of me having them do a different culture because Mm -hmm. it's like fresh set of eyes. You know, like what he sees as hippie culture. It's just it's just awesome. I just I was going to get all like gushy and stuff and I didn't want it to sound like I was infantizing in you know infantilizing that. yes i didn't yeah want, that wasn't my point i was just like oh this is so awesome like yeah that's hip- cool yeah anyway so that's what i'm reading grading that's before great. i go to portland uh, i was reading articles about sex workers from an academic and activist perspectives that i assigned to my students uh, also was revisiting pema children's when things fall apart which i think reading has helped me get out of my sort of funk and depression um and that was my before bedtime reading this week uh, watching, uh, I'm rewatching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend because Logan hasn't seen it. Have we talked about that show ever? I hear it's very good. I dismissed it because of its title, and I think they shouldn't have called yeah. it that because I think a lot of feminists didn't want to watch it, but I hear it's yep. um, it's really good. It's very smart. Yeah, I felt the same way, and I actually didn't love it my first round of watching it, but rewatching it with Logan. First of all, in, in the sort of theme song that they have, they say the word crazy ex-girlfriend and then the main character says uh, that's offensive. And I think she says something about it not being feminist as well. There's a lot of really overt feminist messages. You'll love this one part of the pilot a lot. So I, I, I recommend that you at least watch the pilot because you're going to crack up about a feminist thing that happens later in the episode. And uh, yeah, I'm liking it a lot on my second go around. Uh, I stopped watching it halfway through, so I'll be excited to finish the things that I haven't seen yet. Uh, and listening to... Paula Abdul, because Call Your Girlfriend, the podcast, talked about her video Rush Rush, which stars Keanu Reeves. Oh, I remember and that. I rewatched it and was literally just taken back to my childhood because I was obsessed with Paula Abdul and I was obsessed with that video. And it just makes so much sense that I love that. I mean, I think she's another femme root of mine. She was super high femme in that video. And like there were race racing involved and my dad raced cars. And I just feel like it, it was like, Oh yeah, this is, this video was all, I was all about this. And so I was rewatching that and listening to that. And it was amazing. It was Excellent answer. That's yeah. like the best answer you've ever given. For well. <laughs> Paula Rush Abdul Rush was my first by Paula concert. Abdul. Paula Abdul was my first concert. I saw her when I was like five years old. Were, was she touring with color me bad? She sure was. Did I we was, talk about this before? No, but I was at that concert too. My mom got me cool. like really close. Seats, you remember the, yeah. the cat in the costume that came out during the straight up now tell me is it going to be you? Or wait, was it no, straight up? No, opposites attract. Opposites attract. Thank Cause you. Because in the video, it's like that. The cat. Yeah. Yeah. I was more was excited amazing. about Color Me Bad. And Paula Abdul was, mm-hmm. I can't believe I still remember this, but she was sick the day that she was performing. So it was she a was much. She was pregnant, I think, during that tour. Oh, well, she had lost her voice. I didn't know that or maybe she... she had morning sickness. I'm pretty sure she was like early stages of pregnancy, like very How early. Did I never know. I never got the memo that she was pregnant and had a child. I, I think was very she young did. at that time. I was very young. I could at that be time. wrong. Maybe I'm messing it up. Someone fact check our Paula Abdul gossip. I'm going to like, no, I'm going to do this right now because we're not going to have such fake news on our <laughs> podcast. But right. uh, the point was that she happening, folks. Her her voice was not doing very well, so it was a very like she had a very chill concert, and so I don't Got think it. the cat came out. And if it did, I could care Uh-oh. less. I was really into Color Me Bad then, so I liked um, them too. But I was obsessed with Paula. Paula Abdul. It's not even coming up as Google. It doesn't even really? finish the okay. sentence. 
Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I do know she dated Amelia Westavez, though. That, I don't need to fact check. No, they dated. I see nothing about her being... Okay. All right. Maybe I'm wrong. I thought she was preggers during that show, that concert. It's all about her parents, not her being a parent. Oh, she's of Syrian descent, too. Yeah, Abdul. That's like a... Yeah, well, a lot of artists... I didn't realize that was her real last name. A lot of artists... I just assumed that artists of that time, like, constructed fake names sometimes, too, or like... Maybe she doesn't have kids. I thought she was preggers. And you call yourself a Paul Abdul fan. Really? Fake really, news. You heard it first on Sad. FKJ. Sad. <laughs> Sad. FKJ PhD failing fake news. Sad. Wow. Why did I think she was pregnant during that show? You know say. Anyway. All right. You know say. She did date Amelia Westavez though. So did you just there. say you know say? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, good times. Doesn't that ever happen? I just say you know, things randomly in French or Spanish occasionally. Oh, I do it. No, that's why I'm snapping because I do it all the time. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> all the time. And some people think it's really, they're like, did you just say gafas? I'm like, yeah. They're like, are you learning Spanish? I'm like, no, I just, what? Do I can't code switch? Yeah. Like, it just, you knew what I meant, yeah. right? Why are you stopping the conversation? Anyways, my gafas. <sighs> <sighs> okay. All right. You know well, what I'm saying? Uh, WTF. All right. WTF. Oh, wait. Do it again. Sorry. WTF. Power. Bye. Bye. You in Portland. Bye. See ya. Peace out. I'm going to Portland. Woo! Portland or break. Spring break 2017. <laughs> Coffee and vegan donuts. I'm stoked for both of those.